Welcome back to the podcast. Today's podcast is a little different. We are aiming specifically at pastors or those in ministry of some kind. Now, if you're curious about pastors, certainly listen on to this episode. But we are in a major moment right now in the church. A lot is changing. We've been through a lot in church leaders. We want to speak specifically and directly to you today. So first of all, I've got a pastor coming on the podcast. His name is Jonathan Wiggins. We had an incredible conversation. Not only is he a lead pastor here in Colorado, but he helps to co-lead something called the Pastors Collective with Pastor Greg Surratt at Seacoast Church, who is literally helping pastors across the country to process uh, their pain, to replenish during this season, to find community, to get experiences away. And I absolutely love what they are doing at Pastors Collective. I also bring on Brooke Hempel, and she serves at Barna Group, and she talks about some of the trends that are coming in the church right now, some things that we need to pay attention to. Jonathan's conversation is a two-parter. I didn't want to put it all into one podcast, so you can check the next episode for that. But some incredible thoughts from Barna. They are always doing some of the best cutting-edge research out there, and so I had no idea what we were going to push into, but this conversation with Brooke that you'll catch in the second part of this podcast interview is incredibly helpful. Some of the things we need to be looking at, some of the hard facts we need to look at, even if they're not the most pretty facts in the world, they're things we need to be paying attention to. So this episode of the podcast, if you know a pastor, would encourage you to just drop down on your phone, text this, and share this with someone else. Maybe you share this with your pastoral team. These are things we need to pay attention to. We're going to talk about integrity, We're going to talk about abuse, spiritual abuse, even physical abuse on this episode of the podcast. We're also going to be talking about trends that we need to pay attention to in this moment. You know that we have a heart for any leader who has a battle with health, with longevity, who wants to go the long haul, but understands the complexities of leading in this culture. But we have a special place in our heart for pastors. So pastor, if you are hearing this, we love you. We care for you. We are with you on the journey. We are praying for you this summer as you seek to replenish so you can continue to live and lead healthy. Enjoy this interview, one of two with Jonathan Wiggins and this interview with Brooke Hempel, the VP at Barnett Group. Jonathan, thanks for jumping on the podcast today. Alan, it's an honor to be here with you, my friend. <laughs> Man, but before we get started, I just want to say thank you. You got a ton to do uh, there at Res Church. You've got a family. Um, you're investing as a church in church planners. You're also um, helping to lead Pastors Collective with Pastor Greg Surratt, um, laying it on the line in terms of honesty, vulnerability invitation, time with pastors and leaders to invest in them. So thanks so much for how you're investing in pastors across the country. Well, Alan, as you know, there's a lot to be done. A lot of pastors who are doing the good work, but are stressed or are simply not cared for, advocated for. Some leaders don't even know what they need. And so there's a uh, big wide open spaces for people like you to help. And I really commend you on, on your efforts, your intentionality to help leaders become sustainable, not just to start strong, but to actually follow through with strength. And obviously things like mental health and genuine relational connections and 
vulnerability and a place where you can go with the things that you battle with and know that you're not going to be uh, have your secrets uh, betrayed or weaponized against you. So many of those things matter and just giving leaders places to get outside and enjoy life. So I'm happy to be here with you. I really admire your work and what you're doing and happy to be a part of all the things God has me doing as well. Yeah. Amazing. And I think this is a crucial summer. I, I don't know that we've ever had a more crucial summer. People are talking about revenge travel, uh, trying to make up for last year and the things we didn't get to do. Um, and I think there's probably going to be a lot of revenge scheduling of because we didn't get to do this, we're going to relaunch this thing. We're going to do this. Um, but what I sense God's inviting a lot of leaders across the country, especially pastors into is rest, pause, replenishment, even reevaluate our lives and our rhythms. And I think this season really could be a gift. And I'm interacting with a lot of leaders who are treating it as such, not just a reboot, but a chance for fresh tracks um, with the Lord. And I sense this is a crucial moment. Um, we both lost a friend in Darren Patrick. We've heard of all kinds of other um, just egregious, really hard things that really turn our urgency up to 11 when it comes to leaders. And so that's certainly the place that I come from uh, right now is saying, this is a moment we're going to continue to lean in uh, for leaders. And um, I heard the the context of your story, Jonathan, and you have a really complex, uh, complicated, even conflicted story about growing up as a pastor's kid in the church. Can you just open us up into I don't know, four or five of those sort of movements of being a pastor's kid and how that shaped you and your pastoral journey? This may be the largest set of questions I've ever been given in a single moment. So in let me- five hours or less, go. <laughs> no, I love it. You are a very uh, a high level and complex thinker. I love it. So, um, so let me jump back. So uh, revenge travel is a phrase I've not heard, but I'm going to start using it uh, vengefully. <laughs> uh, I have the longest uh, vacation in my working life scheduled this summer. I'm in the middle of it. Good for you. I and, hope you enjoy those three days that you've got off. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's two days longer than any <laughs> other vacation I've ever had. <laughs> and uh, so taking that time uh, to really focus on my family. I had a little time with my youngest son, uh, Sam, yesterday where we just uh, went to his favorite restaurant and just dreamed together about what we wanted to do as a father and son this summer. And that's super fun. Um, but reestablishing the rhythms, that's so interesting you bring that up. I think you and I are seeing a lot of the same things. And here within my own church, we are we are talking about uh, finishing this year is with you know the, the strength and momentum that we can, but then actually letting the next entire year uh, be a, a year of rest where we do have yeah. weekend worship experiences, but we just don't push good. Uh, for a year and we're going to increase vacation time and just take uh, good care of our people. Then you talked about uh, our mutual friend, Darren Patrick, uh, who sadly last year uh, lost his life, uh, took his own life and the impact that that's had on so many people, including me. And, and you mentioned Pastor Greg Surratt, definitely uh, him and his family and the folks at Seacoast where Darren was a, a teaching pastor there. And then uh, my own story. So yeah, I was, uh, I live in uh, Loveland, Colorado now, but I'm originally from Northeast Louisiana, a little town called Ravel. Uh, Alan, you've never heard of Ravel and that's okay. Mm -hmm. uh, my dad uh, started a church there, uh, was a pastor there. And so whenever I, um, whenever I, my earliest memories of my, was, was of my father being a pastor 
just before launching that church in an even smaller town that people in Ravel had never heard of. And then, and then moving to Ravel and starting uh, a church there. So I think you said in four or five movements. So let me see if I can tackle those. Uh, my dad uh, started a church. It was an independent, uh, non-denominational. I would call it actually, if you're familiar with these streams of ministry, kind of a neo-Pentecostal in that definitely the gifts of the spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, signs and wonders, miracles, those kinds of things. Uh, but but we were not uh, oneness in our theology. We believed in the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And it was of the tradition where uh, a couple would come into a town, start what they would call a revival, and night after night after night, and would keep it going until they felt like it was time to move on. And if they didn't move on, they would rent a facility, build the cheapest building they could, usually made out of some corrugated metal. And then when they got too old to keep leading, they'd hand it off to their son. <laughs> so yeah, uh, I I've was heard that, that son. story before. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so I was that son. Um, so my dad, uh, being a leader, being a pastor, a couple things were going on even early on. But certainly about the age when I uh, hit puberty, physical abuse, um, some some um, sexual grooming. Uh, my brother was, um, it went beyond that for my brother. Um, I have an oldest sister, a middle child is my brother, and then myself. My sister was uh, physically abused. Uh, wow. So all yeah. of us were uh, physically, mentally, and in certain you know, it's on a spectrum, but also uh, sexually abused. And to this day, my brother has incredibly deep uh, brokenness and pain uh, from those experiences. So that's one of those movements, I suppose. Um, when uh, when my dad, really kind of apart from any of the abuse, I remember I talked to some of the people in my church and tried to get help and they no one listened. And so I had this interesting uh, sense of what is what is the point of having community if they're there if they're not there to help uh, keep me safe so that was a that was a bit of a uh, it was definitely a challenge for me my dad's respected uh, meanwhile I'm in this abusive situation and no one will help me but what's interesting it's not the abuse that ultimately uh, disqualified him from ministry but he was in uh, a counseling session as a pastor with someone who this is many years ago who was battling with what now I guess we would call same sex attraction. And as he's talking to my father about uh, his struggles, my dad told uh, this man that he too uh, dealt with that. And so the person who was being counseled went down the street to another pastor's uh, church and told that pastor, that pastor drove to my house. I opened the door for him. He came in and told my dad, if he didn't leave the ministry, that he would uh, put it in the newspaper. Wow. And so um, so all that's kind of going on. It's interesting that the abuse didn't really pique the interest or care of the community, but this, uh, but this same sex attraction uh, was all it took, um, mm -hmm. that getting out and, uh, being weaponized against my father. <clears throat> so concurrent with all that, I was part of a summer camp, uh, where the ministry leaders there, um, the director, uh, named Molly Hartrick. We all called her Miss Molly. She was Severe diabetic, even in her teens, lost her vision at 21 years of age, went on to get her master's degree in counseling, a very heroic, strong, formidable woman, uh, um, connected with me at a summer camp and, and realized some things were not right, got pretty involved in my situation, 
offered me free counseling. And it was with her that I uh, told her everything uh, about what was going on. She intervened in my situation and uh, I ended up at 15, 16 years of age, moving and living with another family. And Miss Molly went on to win the Louisiana Angel Award for her work with at-risk youth. And so on one hand, I have an abuser who was a pastor and a Christian. I have a community of people that didn't care about my safety, but they were real upset about my dad's morality. And then I had this group of people that connected with counseling, best practices, soul care, and, and, and bringing things that are appropriate into the light so that you can help people and help, I think more importantly, help people avoid harm and further abuse. So I had heroes, I had neutral parties, and I had villains all in the church. And to this day, that's kind of my assessment. Mm. Wow. First of all, heartbreaking. Um, and secondly, a miracle that you are now helping others uh, to live and lead healthy. And I would imagine to avoid living dualistic lives and to avoid living and creating the pain um, that you had inflicted on you. But how in the world did you weather the storm to actually ever want to be a pastor after that? So Alan, I wish I could give you a, an answer that would inspire. So I'm just going to give you the real one and let you do it what you want and your listeners. <laughs> I, I have this sense that if we as church leaders can just be ethical and kind to people, that we've won maybe more than half the battle. And <clears throat> I think a lot of times good people uh, leave their churches uh, because of abusive experiences, betrayals, unethical treatment, uh, taking one side that was the first to tell the story rather than taking the time to be thoughtful and listen. And I think if the good folks leave the church, all we'll have left is a broken church. So in, in, on one hand, I think of myself as someone who could just be good and kind to people whenever possible. Uh, it's a low bar, uh, honestly, but just not to abuse people. But then also to know that any space I occupy, any space that the people that, uh, that link arms with me to be kind to people and be good to people, any space we occupy is a space that a potential abuser or narcissist uh, will not take up. So I think of it as a little bit of a calling and a little bit of a standing my post so someone else doesn't come in who will hurt people. Wow, I love that. Miss Molly... Uh, another person in your life that God used um, was a pastor, sort of larger than life personality, Billy Hornsby. Tell us about how oh, yeah. God used Billy in your life. <clears throat> so when my dad uh, was confronted by that pastor, he ended up talking to his church and started the process of moving towards r resigning and leaving uh, the church. And so uh, before I left home, I was still at home at this time and everyone else in ministry that we knew our, our friends, they all disappeared. In fact, my sister, four years older than me, she drove down the road a few miles to go to a church on a Wednesday night just to get some peace and sanctuary. You know, that's why they call those buildings sanctuaries, right? <laughs> and, uh, and so while she was there, the pastor, not knowing uh, that she, who she was, uh, talked about this uh, gay pastor down the road who didn't deserve to be in ministry. And my sister was devastated that someone would take a, a Wednesday night to talk about uh, our family. 
And so we were just traumatized by the whole thing. And, but there were three people who stepped closer toward us in the midst of all this. Uh, one is a man named Don Boyette. He's now my father-in-law, my wife's father. Uh, Miss Molly, we've already talked about. She would go on later to intervene in my situation and help me be in a safe environment. And then Billy Hornsby. Billy Hornsby had been a pastor in that part of Louisiana a long time ago. In fact, uh, Alan, my dad, sold Billy a 1981 red Mercury, if you even mm-hmm. remember that brand of car, <laughs> yep. with red vinyl interior. Um, so they they had some relationship and Billy was driving through town. He had since moved and was driving through town when all this happened and stopped by our house just to encourage us. And, um, and he made a point. I was a teenager at this point. He made a point to talk to me and he said, Hey, I know this is painful. And he said this, don't give up on God and don't give up on the church. (laughs) Mm. And I didn't. And I credit him in many ways with why I stayed uh, stayed in ministry even at that age. Uh, started leading worship at 16, playing piano, leading worship. And when my when I started working, my my pastor, who again my father-in-law Don Boyette, we would go to these conferences. Uh, and Billy uh, would be often a, a conference speaker in that part of the state, North Louisiana, South uh, Arkansas. And Alan, even as I was a teenager, Billy would remember my name. He would make a point whenever he saw me at one of these conferences to go go down, meet with me, call me by name and say, hey, your, your story's not over. Your dad's story's not over. The best is ahead. And so just that simple encouragement. I think of the scripture, uh, Galatians 6, 1, that says when a person is overtaken in a fault, let those who are spiritual restore them. And I always thought, for someone like Billy, not to run away from our situation, but to step in to make sure that uh, that we continued on, that I continued on in the ministry. I I think if I understand that scripture, uh, Billy may have been one of the most spiritual people I've ever met. I'm just thinking about the connections between Pastor Greg Surratt and you now with Pastors Collective and those few sentences, those few encounters and moments that shaped you. And um, I even just want to go back to, you know, half the battle you're talking about. If we could just not abuse people, if we could just be ethical, if we could just be sort of the good example, taking up space. Um, I just want to pause there for a second. Cause that's, that's an intense statement. And I absolutely agree. Maybe we've complexified a whole lot of things. Um, I love that word complexified. I'm going to start using it. Right? I've learned to, revenge travel and complexified today. <laughs> we're just going to make up words today and pretend they <laughs> exist. So we have complexified. Um, I think a yeah. lot of things, if we could just simplify, what are two or three things right now, Jonathan, that you think congregations would love to have from their pastors, maybe are longing to have, from their pastors that would signal safety? Wow. Um, I love that question. The idea of what a pastor could bring that would signal safety. I think um, one of the first things people in leadership, spiritual leadership need to entirely get out of the business of telling people what their motives are. Hmm. Um, you know, we, we have a couple of scriptures out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And we think somebody says something I don't like, therefore it makes them this, or 
someone does something I don't like, and therefore it makes them that. And I think a lot of times we think we can actually know what's in the heart of a person. And actually, uh, the Bible's quite clear uh, that, that no person can know another person's heart. Um, and so when we, when we do that, when we, when we accuse a person of having bad motives, when really all we know is what we can see and hear, I think we're doing the work of the accuser. Instead wow. of just saying, hey, what you said to me wasn't true, we move past that into, you know, you're a liar or you're deceitful. I think it's interesting that the, it's not the job description of a pastor to accuse people. It's the job description. It's the job description of the enemy of our soul uh, to accuse people. And I think a lot of times we do the work of the enemy when we, when we accuse people and think we know their motives, not taking the secrets and the stories and the things that we hear and weaponizing them or using them against people. Um, I know of a situation where there was a counseling pastor on a staff who went to his lead pastor with very private confidential information about someone in their church. And that pastor took action. That pastor took action based on this confidential uh, information. Um, that kind of thing in a professional setting, if that pastor had been a licensed counselor rather than just a counseling pastor, that would, that would have, that would have been a, something that would have cost that counselor dearly because you just can't do that. Yeah. But in the church, we have all these gray areas where we harm people by just not being ethical. So there are a couple of, a couple of ways um, that I think we could provide a much safer uh, environment. So thanks mm. for letting me finish those two answers. Yeah. Yeah. So good. Um, you weren't on the lead pastor trajectory and yet you find yourself here. How do you think that was helpful to you to not sort of head toward that trajectory and then eventually land there, but to incubate in some other spaces and to watch lead pastors before you were one? Alan, that might be one of the best questions I've ever been asked on a podcast, bro. I'm not kidding. Um, I think, I think being someone who served on staff, most of my ministry. So the only, the only place I've been lead pastor is here at Res Church. So before that I was, uh, worship pastor, music director. And I saw uh, pastors uh, be one person in front of their congregation and someone else entirely in private, um, you know, with regard to how they would treat people with respect versus just slandering them privately. I saw pastors who um, would tell someone, hey, when you get on staff, I'm going to pay you this amount of money. And then ne never follow through on that full amount. You know, say, well, we're going to start part-time and then never move them to full-time. And I've seen pastors that uh, kept their word and that were discreet and were honorable and were the same and respected people. And so I saw both. Uh, I, also, I also served under an executive pastor. His name is Scotty. And he was uh, actually an excellent executive pastor. But as a staff member, I didn't understand why he did some of the things he did. And I, it would hurt me when he would make necessary decisions that I didn't agree with. And over time, as I grew into higher levels of leadership, I realized, oh, I can learn so much from that guy. He didn't do what he did to be popular. Uh, he did what he did to be ethical and, and adhere to best practices. And so seeing both sides of character, competency, capacity, chemistry, 
in organizations from the standpoint of a staff member, but then to move into a lead pastor role. Alan, one of the things that's it's caused me to do is be very careful not to overpromise with potential employees or staff members mm, yeah, uh, to keep their secrets when something comes to me to make sure it came to me ethically, like information. I never want to weaponize anything, but there are times when there's information, if it's ethically uh, transmitted or given to me, uh, not to hurt a person, but to sit down with them and help them to grow or to learn. You know, there are ethical uses of someone, you know, holding someone else accountable. I think that's true. But I also think there are times when we have weaponized uh, sensitive information uh, to people's great harm. So those are some of the things uh, I've seen. Uh, and so as a, as a pastor, I try not to overpromise and underdeliver. I try not to tell people things that I intend to do. I just try to do it. Uh, so I don't, you know, the Bible says hope deferred makes the heart sick. I think sometimes we dream with people what we want for them. And then over time it, it discourages them because it doesn't come. Uh, yeah. I just want to treat people well and, and uh, not weaponize secrets and be ethical and adhere to best practices. Oh, and the other thing I was going to say is to be under accountability myself. I think sometimes we, as pastors, when we get a little isolated, we think that anytime we're criticized, we're being persecuted. And that's not always true. Sometimes we're just being criticized. Right. And sometimes we need to be. And so having good, healthy relationships. Pastor Greg Surratt says, people who love you, but are not impressed by you. Yeah. Um, who, can, who can say, you know what? I think you actually did something wrong here. You could probably learn from. So those are some of the things that I've learned. Well, Brooke, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Good to be here. I so appreciate Barna and the work that you guys do. And um, you guys are digging into so many different areas, but right now you're talking about diversity uh, within the church. So talk a little bit about this beyond diversity study uh, that you guys have been recently uh, digging into. What are you finding out about the church and diversity? Yeah. So the, this study really started as a follow-up to a book that many uh, church leaders and Christians are familiar with, um, which is a book written by Dr. Michael Emerson uh, many years ago called Divided by Faith. Dr. Emerson and Christian Smith co-wrote that about 20 years ago. And we wanted to follow up, uh, you know, two decades later and say, okay, that sort of spawned a bit of a multi-ethnic movement in a lot of ways. And so where are we now as a church? And so uh, the thought was that because there are indeed more multi-ethnic churches, we've seen that number grow from about 5% of churches at the end of uh, the 1990s to about 15% today. And so we thought, okay, let's let's see how that's going then. Has that changed perceptions? Has that changed people's motivations around this, this topic? Um, and we started doing this research in 2019. So, I mean, 2020 has been a real year of, of kind of reckoning um, in a lot of ways in the church and our society. And so we were even doing this research before that, uh, looking at what the kind of engagement was of the church and trying to understand people's knowledge and understanding and engagement with some of these issues. And um, it's been a really amazing journey because in some ways um, we have you know, been encouraged by anecdotally things that we hear. In a lot of ways, we've been discouraged by what seems to be um, a, a perception of progress, but it's maybe not progress always in the right direction. 
So the reason that this, this study is called Beyond Diversity is that was part of the challenge that we ran into, um, that we realized there were churches who were pursuing um, more diversity. They were multi-ethnic communities, but they weren't always addressing the things that mattered to all of their members. And they weren't always um, operating in a way that actually really produced spiritual fruit and um, just communal growth in a, in a very positive way. Mm. So my family, we're part of a multi-ethnic church in, in the season and we are a multi-ethnic family. So this has been beautiful for us. Um, but certainly like you're talking about, there are traditions, tension points, uh, various backgrounds of church, uh, especially when you think about a multi-ethnic church, um, living in Colorado, people come from all over the country to be here. So nobody was really raised here. So, so many layers of that. Can you talk about some of those tension points there that you were referencing that maybe look like some progress is happening, but maybe obstacles, um, that multi-ethnic yeah. churches are hitting? Yeah. So in some ways, people's knowledge and understanding has grown a bit, um, and especially even over the last year of their recognition of, gosh, the reality of our history um, and the reality that in our country, um, there has not been equal treatment. There has not been equal opportunity in a lot of ways. And so that's been a shift um, in people being more willing to acknowledge that or just more aware of that reality. Uh, so that's been positive. Uh, but what we also looked at was then based on that, what did they think was underlying some of those things? You know, if we have a gap um, in the opportunity that some some group, groups experience, what's underlying that? And we have disagreement on that. Um, if we have worship uh, that that often is segregated, what what's underlying that? What Why do we think that is? And people have different reasons for or what they understand to be what's underlying that. So let me give you an example. Um, one of the questions we asked was looking at this concept of what are we talking about when we say that there is um, some sort of problem in our country today, right? And so we gave two options and we asked people to choose. Um, would you say that it is a bigger problem that uh, individuals um, practice or have certain beliefs and have certain prejudice that cause them to treat people differently according to their race? Or would you say that it's a bigger issue that there's discrimination built into our society and institutions? And so we see a real split on that. So on the whole, if we look just at practicing Christians, um, we see more than half say it's an individual prejudice issue. And we see about a third who say, no, no, this is a systemic issue. And then there's another 12% who just say, I don't know. Mm -hmm. um, but what's important is that those answers are incredibly different according to your own racial identification, right? So we have um, our minority brothers and sisters, either two thirds or about half strongly agree that the issue is about systemic structural differences. Um, whereas we only have about a quarter of white practicing Christians who say that's the issue. Sure. They're much more likely to believe it's an individual prejudice issue. So the problem with that is you're gonna address it differently. And even when that happens in your own church community, you think, okay, well, the solution to this is we just need to get together. We need to spend time together, get to know each other and building relationships. And the church is a great place to do that. And that's going to resolve the issues. But that would resolve the individual prejudice issue, potentially. Mm. It's not going to address the structural issues, which are perceived predominantly to be 
the problem, um, especially by black practicing Christians in this country. So we're kind of not even on the same page in terms of what we mm. think is happening in the country. And therefore, we're not on the same page in terms of what to do about it. Mm. That's helpful. And that makes total sense. Uh, any of the data that surprised you or you think is a particular note or highlight for our listeners? Yeah, two things I would say um, that really kind of surprised us. One is that we, like I said, we did start doing this research in 2019. And we found that um, we, we re- redid a couple of the questions in 2021 because of all that had occurred in 2020 with just um, people demonstrating and, and raising these issues, right, nationally and internationally. And so we expected that people would be not only more aware, but they would be more engaged. They would say, yes, I want to play a part in bringing about change. And so what we did find was a slight improvement in awareness and kind of recognition that, yes, we do have some issues that need to be addressed. But we found a sliding backwards in terms of motivation to address these things. Mm. So what was happening was there was fatigue setting in or there was um doubt or conspiracy theories that were kind of circulating through the church of like, oh, this is something that we're not handling well. And so they began to get um, disengaged from this topic, even when they might previously have been engaged. They became more skeptical, uh, especially, I should say, white Christians in particular. Um, so that is a challenge and a surprise and um, something that's that was very concerning to us. I think the second thing that surprised us was that we saw leaders be not now while leaders really set a tone in their church and it's super important that they are fully um, kind of educated about these issues and engaging if they are in a multi-ethnic community especially or, or desiring that we did see on the whole more of them saying hey like i have a heart for this i really want this change to happen um but i'm struggling with bringing everyone else along with me whether that's my elders or, you know, the board who oversees the church, or that might be certain members of the congregation who are really vocally pushing back. And that that often is stopping progress that's happening. Hmm. So while of course we know it's important that leadership is leading in the right direction on this, um, we know that they're encumbered by uh, Hmm. other, you know, factors that are kind of maybe pulling them back, um, keeping them from speaking up maybe when they want to, or, or taking steps, to make changes that might be uncomfortable for certain members. Mm, sure. That makes total sense. And that's the sentiment I'm hearing from coaching sessions. Now, I, I just so appreciate the way that you guys do research on things that we hear about. Uh, so I feel like this is so helpful to me, other coaches who listen. Um, but I believe we have leaders of an inordinate influence that listen to this podcast. They have Uh, not only their families, they have teams around them, they lead nonprofits, they lead churches. Uh, And so what would you say, and some of this just may be more Brooke than it is Barna, but what what would you say are some particular ways forward for the leader that says, yes, I want to learn. Yes, I want to grow. I actually want to invite other people into that, but I feel like I'm hitting obstacles. Any way forward for a leader of inordinate influence in this season, Brooke? Yeah, Uh, we identified a few things because, so we did pretty substantial quantitative research, but we also did some focus group research. And a lot of the solutions came from our focus group research in different churches. So a few things I would recommend. One is do a really thorough review and vetting of your culture. Um, It is very common that you've got a multi-ethnic church and essentially you've invited people into a white culture and asked them to assimilate. 
So it's really important to be kind of on guard against this pressure to, or this um, forces that kind of drive us towards, let's just, you know, keep things kind of the way they are and, and invite others in. So we have to be really honest about our culture and make sure that we're really ready for change. Um, the next is related to that, which is sacrifice comfort. And this is the hardest thing, but actually this is in my mind, the best thing, because this is where discipleship happens, right? Like it is not in our nature to give up the things that are familiar or comfortable. We don't naturally tend towards, you know, the uncomfortable, harder yes. way. <laughs> we tend yes. towards the easier, familiar way, right? So we really have to be so intentional about saying, we're going to do things that make some of us uncomfortable so that others will not only feel comfortable, they'll feel fully welcome. They'll feel mm. part of the family, right? So there's this difference between, hey, you're welcome to come in here versus, hey, you're welcome to be a part of our family. In fact, we want to be a part of your family, mm. right? So there's a, there's a nuance there that really matters. The next thing is being just really straightforward about acknowledging race and racial issues. Um, we kind of dance around these words sometimes. We talk about culture. We talk about ethnicity. We really need to hit it straight on because that's how people of color are experiencing it, right? And so it's important to be able to address these things directly. And that can be a hard shift to make, especially if the church is not wanting to ruffle too many feathers or make people feel uncomfortable. But if we don't, it becomes the elephant in the room. And it mm. creates more division than, yeah. than unity. So it's important to go ahead and just address it, right? And in in that, say we're for this. We're for you, all of our members. Um, we're for you, all of our visitors. And so we want to just be able to talk about this so that we don't miss something, right? Mm. And the last thing that just came up over and over again is practice what you preach. So there was a lot of leaders who understood enough about some of these racial, racial justice issues to talk about them. But when they made decisions, those decisions didn't line up with what they talked about. And that creates deep distrust. And that actually leads to further harm. And in fact, you know, our, our recommendation would be, um, you would be better off having uh, a homogenous church mm. with only one racial group in it than to have a multi-ethnic church and do harm mm. because of the way that you're handling wow. that. So that would be an important step is to just, be vetting yourself all the time, be, be, have, have others hold you accountable, be watching your own behaviors and, and saying, Hey, where am I not living authentically? And, and really being open to having others give you feedback on that, because this is hard. This is why it's discipleship. This is not easy to get out of our comfort zone and do things that are not our norm, but that's where the growth happens. And that's where the beauty of God's redemption shows up. Mm, that's great. Well, Brooke, appreciate you and the team at Barna going after so many of these hard issues, but also to get data from things that we know underneath the surface are just not there uh, and just not right in our, like you say, discipleship issues. So, so appreciate that. We're going to hear from you guys once in a while here on the podcast. We are going to continue to talk about uncomfortable um, areas and conversations, and you guys are so good at finding the data there. Uh, and some of our next steps, where can people go to find more of these resources on Beyond Diversity? Yeah, so at Barna.com, we have Barna.com slash Beyond Diversity. Um, they can find the, the book itself that's come out. Um, there's a few kind of resources for churches, like some slides and things that they can use to share uh, with maybe their other leaders and in, in their teams. Um, and then just be on the lookout. Some of our other research team members like Dr. Emerson, Dr. Glenn Bracey, um, Chad Brennan are all coming out with books based on the same data, looking at different pieces of it. So it will continue to come out and be showing up on that website. Shot, shot, shot.
So long.